becomes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you grab just turns to dust. Like eye contact with a stranger straight around the corner. It's a dream that you get to make real. Passing note of the song. Well, I did ask this question to, uh, it was Dave's, Dave Kiesel's birthday on Saturday and it was, uh, thanks for the invite, Dave. <laughs> well, I asked the group, it was cause like most everybody's done, you know, a uh, couples therapy and, and doing the couples retreats and stuff like that. And, it's like I made this observation. And it's like it felt like uh, I asked them. I was like, "Do you feel like couples therapy is more from a feminine perspective <coughs> than a masculine perspective?" Excuse me. And nobody answered that question. Really? Uh, yeah. That was kind of. <coughs> what did they avoid it? I don't know. I, I I'm not sure. It's like I I kind of feel like I was like the uh, the the one in the room that didn't get it, you know, like, mm. like, Oh, you don't get it. <laughs> hmm. I mean, it, that seems obviously true. That's, that was my option. I was like, cause I, I, and then I mean, cause how to, if you're, if you're two men and you have a disagreement about something, <laughs> the ultimate solution to that is we fight each other. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way the world worked for, until uh-huh. up until the enlightenment, essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, that was my comment. Was, we need our femininity. I mean, I'm not saying. Yeah, that yeah, totally do. Counseling shouldn't be <clears throat> feminine. Yeah. Well, and I would I'll probably argue, and I, I, maybe we just maybe the conversation shifted in a different direction. But uh, like, I would have argued that you know, 50 years ago, marriage counseling was more masculine. Really, like back in the fifties or something like that, you know, kind of more focused on maybe duty or, Hmm. you know, obligations or, you know, that kind of thing, you know, but, and now it's more about emotion and feeling, you know? Yeah. And it's not that this is, none of this is saying that this is bad. I just, it was more of an observation and I was asking if they had experienced the same thing. Hmm. Reminds me of that Seinfeld episode where mm. Jerry decides he's going to get married and Kramer talks him out of it. <laughs> he's like, you're going to come home from dinner, come home, sit down for dinner. You're going to talk about your feelings. <laughs> hey, um, welcome hey, to the shores. Cheers to the shores. <laughs> cheers. Already there. Diving in. Well, it's hard for me to talk about this because it, it, it's, it's not that there's a lot of good stuff in that. It's just, because that's something that was bothering me. I was like, I feel like there's something missing in this. Like I did, mm-hmm. uh, I did read a marriage book um, called the Pass- passionate, passionate marriage. Your mom, I think uh, recommended mm. that book. Oh, and Oh was, yeah. Sh- uh, Sh- Shwarma, Shwarma, yeah, Dave. Was like, <laughs> what was his name? We talked about, we talked about him on the podcast before. Yeah. Went out when we had Allison on. And I, and when I read that book, I was like, I was like, okay, that's kind of a more of a, a masculine, you know, mm-hmm. uh, some marriage from a masculine point of view, you mm-hmm. know, uh, but also being a therapist, it's, it's like, you also felt the feminine there in there too, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I think most, it seems like therapy is dominated is more of a female dominated area. Would you say? 
I think that's true now. I don't think that's always been true. Uh, yeah, I would probably agree with that. Yeah. Obviously, that's anecdotal, but <laughs> uh, I, 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 I've heard my dad over the years mm. say that. Yeah, and to during the times when I have searched for a therapist, either for myself or others, mm-hmm. I notice that they're primarily female. Mm. You chose a, a male. Mm-hmm. Is there any? Did you do that on purpose or? Yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Why, for sure. why was that? Oh, you don't think Because it. <laughs> I'm a male and I needed another male, I think, to understand the things that I am and was struggling with. Hmm. I mean, I think that the female experience and the male experience are, are each very unique and you can't really, you know, we can't understand what it's like to be a woman mm-hmm. and a woman can't understand what it's like to be a man. I mean, we can talk about it and we can have productive, meaningful conversations about it. But I think that when I first went to therapy, which was a surprise to me, not something I ever expected that I would do mm-hmm. maybe because both my parents are therapists um, so, you know, I kind of felt like, well, I got that covered, <laughs> but, um, um, I think I was struggling with things that I obviously didn't have a solution for. And mm-hmm. I, and I didn't have, I didn't know how to address them. Mm-hmm. And I think that that the male experience, it seemed important to me to be able to shed light on that mm-hmm. needed to talk to a man. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, um, and that's, you know, personal individual therapy. Mm-hmm. I think I would feel somewhat differently if it was, I don't think that I would feel inclined to seek out a male therapist necessarily if it was for couples counseling. Because hmm. in that case, both the male and the female need to be understood. Would you say, again, this is anecdotal, but that usually the male would defer to the female to pick the counselor in couples therapy. Yeah. I would expect that it would generally go that way. Yeah. That the male would have less of an opinion and the female would have more of a need to find someone that made them feel safe. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, so wait, I, mean, I think these are just these are more just observations, and yeah. obviously, like there's a lot of anecdotal aspects to this, but there's just something I was really curious about because I just have felt a lot of it's like not necessarily disagreeing with a lot of like you know marriage books and counseling and that kind of stuff, or what you know friends tell me about stuff, different experiences they've had. It was just more of an observation that you know there's, there's, there's somewhat in today's society, it seems like there's missing sort of the, the male experience of marriage or relationships. I mean, that's happening in more places than just therapy though. Wouldn't you say? Oh, that's true. Yeah. <clears throat> Men are, are generally receding in society. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole, that's a whole interesting topic to get into. Cause even like, like even just in this conversation right now, 
if we were two women talking about women in society, there's a lot more openness to talk about the issues and the problems surrounding, you know, what women face in society and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But if you, but if you talk about that in, you know, for men, it's, God, there's so many different, like what are those incels? Like there's all these like labels that, that kind of get thrown out as far as, um, men talking about how they fit into society and what role do we have, you know, because uh, there's all those different tropes as far as like, you know, the extreme sort of like whatever men can do, women can do it better, you know? Yeah. And it's like, and I feel like, I feel like it's sort of like, <laughs> God, like I'm just going to jump off the deep end here and just like go for it. <laughs> it's almost like men are also just trained to be able to, or are, are sort of defer and tell like there's actually real trouble and mm-hmm. like danger and that's whenever like to protect and there's, it's like, there's something in men, I think that, that does that sort of almost behaviorally or animalistically, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but we need, we need to be called to action. You know, we don't necessarily need to, to take action for the most part. I think men tend to have a tend to have a tendency (laughs) to keep their head down, Mm -hmm. not complain, whatever job is at hand done. Yeah. You know, what's I heard, like I heard Constantine, um, who's from uh, trigonometry talk about this too. Like men are expendable. You know, if, if, yeah. if you have 10 men and one woman that are last on earth, like you're in trouble. Right. But if you have 10 women and one man, you can populate the, you know, the world again or whatever, yeah, right. <laughs> make a society out of that. Right. You know? And, and just functionally men are not as valuable, you know, mm-hmm. as far as, um, uh, just in the reproductive and re- reproduce or populating the, the world or whatever, you know, how do you feel about that? Uh, part of me is okay with it. I think. Yeah. And, and that was interesting because Constance says like, he was talking about that same idea sort of like, there's something in me that's just sort of like, yeah, it's like, no, women are more important than men. hundred percent. Yeah. And I don't think any, uh, most men don't disagree with that. Like they give life, they bring life into this world. Right. And, and I feel like there's certain, it's like, there's a certain call for men is sort of like for us to protect that. Mm -hmm. Even even at our own expense, Mm -hmm. the expense of our own life. Yeah. That seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah. You know, whether I would actually even seems honorable. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, whether I would actually, you know, be a coward or I don't know in, in those types of situations, but I would like to think in my head, I would be that person right. that steps in and takes the bullet or goes off the war to protect the homeland or, or whatever it might be, you know, um, to defend your house, you know, um, well, it reminds me of that scene in the Titanic where the boats sinking, they're all trying to get onto the lifeboats Mm. and they're saying women and children first. Mm -hmm. And there's like one sort of side character kind of man, kind of man (laughs) who squeezes his way onto one of these boats Mm. full of women. Mm -hmm. And you look at him with a certain amount of disgust. Yeah. Like you fucking coward, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it's almost unimaginable 
to think about that in the reverse. Oh yeah. Men first on the boats Mm -hmm. and a woman sneaks on and you look at her with disgust. Yeah. Like for all the talk of the patriarchy, I think that you can consult your own sense of things with scenarios like that. Mm -hmm. Like, well, maybe there's such a thing as a patriarchy. Does that then necessitate that to the extent there is a patriarchy that's harming women Mm. or is it actually protecting women, Mm. glorifying them? Yeah. I mean, we act as if women and children are the most important things in society. Mm-hmm. Even though the discourse of postmodern progressive politics would like to insist that women are oppressed, mm-hmm. we don't act that way as a society. Our, yeah. our rules um, of etiquette would say otherwise. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I guess, I guess a lot of the talk around that is those rules are patronizing towards women, you know, whether, you know, holding the door open or, uh, you know, ladies first or, or whatever it might be. It's, it's sort of, or I'm going to walk on the right hand side of you so that, you know, if a car <laughs> right goes off the rails, I'm, I'm going to be hit and I can push you out of the way or something like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> guess I would just say, if you're a woman who feels that way about things, Consider if all of those things went away. Mm -hmm. Would that be good for you? Would that make your life better or worse? Would you find men more or less attractive? Mm. Would you be more or less interested in starting a family? Would you be more or less interested in sex in general? Mm. And that's kind of an interesting observation that as those kinds of ideas, like it's patronizing for a man to hold the door open for a woman, Mm. as those ideas have become popular, the rates of reproductive rates Mm. have gone down. Mm -hmm. The rates of people having sex in general are going down. So, I mean, is that a better world? Yeah. Some would say yes. Just there's too many people on the planet kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's a whole nother topic. Well, (laughs) I mean, it kind of goes, Yeah, that explodes into a, a big mm-hmm. topic, but it kind of hits on something we were talking about before the podcast, which is is, is that it seems that everything is inverted mm-hmm. in a certain way. Like if if you're trying to make the case that there's too many people in the world, well, what do you do about that? Mm-hmm. And how are you any different than the people who pushed forward ideologies that resulted in tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people being murdered in the 20th century? How do you avoid becoming that? Mm. You know, there's some very simple questions that you should ask yourself, you know, and one of which is, should we be for or against human flourishing? And everything unfolds very differently depending on what side, how you answer that question. Mm -hmm. Because if you're for human flourishing, you know, then maybe you need to examine whether or not the positions that we are taking are causing humans to flourish or not. I mean, you look around at falling reproductive rates in part because people aren't having sex, but also in part because sperm counts are 
plummeting, uh, diabetes and obesity are skyrocketing. Mental health has never been worse. Suicide rates in young, in children, especially in young girls are higher than ever. It's like, at some point you have to wonder whether the, whether these things are a result, at least in part of the ideological positions that we've taken. <clears throat> and if they are, it doesn't matter how good you think the ideological position was. If the result of it is that humans go extinct, let's say at the very extreme, then is that a position that's worth holding no matter how dear to you it might be or no matter how strongly you feel about it? It's really hard for me to say this. I kind of feel like all this has to play out because we forget that we've been on, on this planet for, I don't know when, when humans, I think it was like 60,000 years and then 10,000 years ago or 12,000 years ago is the agriculture revolution. You know, we've been here for a while and we've <clears> tried <throat> a lot of different things as yeah. far as like, and it's, it's somewhat presumptuous that we as moderns, would kind of discard so much of that learned wisdom from millennia. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, especially whenever you think about, you know, what is the best situation for a child to grow up in? Again, things happen, but is when the husband and wife are married and committed, you know, whether you call it marriage or not committed to yeah, each other, right. monogamy and uh, can focus their attention on raising their kids, working, providing them for their family. Like that's, we've, we've seen that. And it seemed like that's been fairly well documented that that is the best chance you can give your kids, you know? Oh yeah. The, the data on that are crystal clear. Mm -hmm. It is the, the, the best outcomes for children are when they are raised by their biological mother and father mm -hmm. together in the same home. There's no debate. Yeah. Oh, so I saw, I don't know if I'll be able to find it. I think I didn't save it because I didn't want the Instagram algorithm to like start putting <laughs> that shit in my newsfeed anymore. Uh -huh. um, but it, it was, it surprised me to see it because I kind of thought that it had died away, but it was um, a post about how the idea of the nuclear family being about love and care and the well-being of children mm -hmm. was a lie that was sold to us to promote capitalism. <laughs> and I had to go read it because it reminded me of, you know, one of the tenets of the black lives matter movement was the destruction of the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. And it's hard, you know, the black lives matter movement has kind of gone somewhat quiet these days, mm -hmm. you know, pop its head up every now and again, but that's kind of the pattern that it takes, um, is it comes out on the tail of some event, but on the back of which it can raise a bunch of money and then goes away for a while and then comes back out. And, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's surprising to see something in there like that, that how is the black, how is black lives mattering have anything to do with the destruction of the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. And you have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to make sense of that. And, and actually, even when you make sense of it, it doesn't make sense mm -hmm. because the idea that the nuclear family is a lie to sell capitalism. It, and I think they said it, it turns the family into units of consumption. Mm 
something like that. And I just thought, well, I think it's one of these, who, who was it? Robert, somebody coined the term luxury beliefs. Hmm. It's a, it's one of a great many beliefs that you can only have when you're rich enough to not pay the consequences of enacting the belief. So, you know, you might want to say that just like you can sign up, you can kind of find a way to say that the tradition and the wisdom that brought us here was really just a trick to steal from us, a trick to get to control us, which I sort of understand the impetus for because you look around and it feels like everything, everyone is lying to us all the time and pulling one over on us, yeah. you know, but with something like the nuclear family, you know, you go, go play that out, you know, and in a sense we have in um, particularly poorer families and particularly the black community has played that out, the destruction of the nuclear family. And it's not going well. It doesn't go well. And so you can hold that belief so long as you're not paying the price for it. If you go play that belief out, things get worse, not better. Hmm. Yeah. I still think it's hard to articulate that to me. It seems pretty, pretty straightforward, you know, when it's your offspring, you have a lot more invested in that person. Mm -hmm. And, and I think it can happen outside of the nuclear family, but I think it's a lot rarer cases where you have, you know, I mean, the, the commitment that you have in adoption, you know, it's like, I've seen some really beautiful, beautiful families yeah. in, in that space, right. I've, you know, or a stepdad that steps up and takes on the father, you know, the, the, biological father figure, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, there's a really, but again, you have to also ask, well, what is it representing? It's representing the natural, what it should be. And it's really beautiful that it can happen outside of that, but it's like how, you know, what is it, um, symbolizing it's symbolizing sort of the, the intent of that sort of biological mother and father raising their child, you know? And, and the, mm. the others mimic that and it's, and it's beautiful too. And, and I think it's really awesome, but you kind of have to go back and look at first principles and like, what is it mimicking? You know? Well, that's really interesting. It, it, it seems to me like all of it is mimicking something. Hmm. And that's to say, what are you mimicking? Well, you're mimicking the ideal. Yeah. <clears throat> because ask any adopted kid if it's better to be adopted or not, mm -hmm. you know? And I think, adopted kids wish that they hadn't been adopted, that they, that, that they had just had their parents. Mm -hmm. And maybe they say, well, it's better to be adopted because my parents were alcoholics and beat me mm -hmm. or something like that. You know, my grandfather ran away from home for that reason when he was like 12 and took his nine-year-old brother with him, yeah. you know, but so when, when you're trying to figure out what's better or worse, you're not, you're not comparing it to something which is objective you're comparing it to something which is an ideal mm. and even the nuclear family is mimicking the ideal mm. because in a sense we're all broken. Yeah. All, just because, you know, you're, you're married and have kids and you 
sort of check the boxes of the nuclear family doesn't mean that you're living out the ideal. Totally. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the the wife is resentful and the husband's alcoholic and distant and, mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever. Like, you, <laughs> there's an infinite number of variations of failure. <laughs> um, but we have to have something to, to act out. Mm-hmm. And... That's what that is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the ideal that when we try to act it out, things go better than when we don't. Mm-hmm. That isn't to say that things don't go well with other configurations of family units. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have a nuclear family, family unit, but no friends and no relatives and no mentors outside and that's not going to be good for you. Mm-hmm. You know, y- yes, it's best to have your mother and your father in your home. But as you grow, you're going to need a lot of other characters as well. Yeah. You're going to need friends. Aunts and uncles are great. Mm-hmm. Grandparents, wonderful. But then you're going to need people at your school who believe in you. Teachers, coaches. Mm-hmm. You're going to need, um, you know, people of the opposite sex to interact with to civilize you. Mm-hmm especially as a male. <laughs> totally. You know? um, hmm. But it's interesting as you're, as you're painting that picture, it's like, I see this sort of idea of like the center out. And then even within those, that ideal, you're going to have points of failure. You know, you're going to have a, a bad coach or a horrible teacher, or maybe it's your dad. That's horrible. Or your mom, that's horrible. Or, you know, well, and you know, you kind of need those characters too. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a, um, I was homeschooled for the first part of my education and then I went to public school and that was quite a shock to me. Um, but one of the things that happened was I had a math teacher that really hated me Hmm. and I'd been homeschooled, you know, I'd been around people who loved me Mm -hmm. all my life. Hmm. I'd never, I'd never been around someone who not only didn't love me, but like actively disliked me. Yeah. I didn't know how to deal with it, Hmm. but I, it's a good thing to learn because well, how should you deal with somebody that doesn't like you? Totally. And the answer is at first you don't know, but you're not going to find out unless you live that. Mm. So that's a good thing to know as well. Yeah. Those are hard things to to navigate, especially as a, as a, as a young person, mm-hmm. when you first experience that, you know, you, you might have a friend group that you're close to, and then you have a friend group that there's almost antagonistic to you. And it's like, why is that? Why are they being this way? Like, what did I do or did I do anything, you know? And I think that's something that it's like healthy to experience, especially in more of a harmless controlled environment than when you get out into the real world and don't know how to, to navigate those situations. You know? Right. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. You do need that, that contrast, but I think that's why it's, it's even better whenever, as you get, you know, those concentric circles as they go out, you know, if you have a, a good foundation like that, I think that's something that gives you strength as you go out into the unknown, Yeah, you know, as you start moving out into that further circles that people don't really have as much invested in you for your future, you know, as far as like, I don't know, doing homeschool is like you had all these people around, surround you that loved you and they had 
some, some level of invested interest in you. Except for my sister, you know, she <laughs> kicked me in the shins all the time. <laughs> but it was a love Just kick. <laughs> it was a love kick. She loved me. <laughs> but as you get further out, it's like, it, it's rare that you will have somebody who has your interest in mind. Right. And, and it's good to be aware of that. Yeah. Know? I'm reminded of the experience of first going off to college. And I know you had a kind of similar experience of mm-hmm. moving away from home and, that's a, that's interesting because you're old enough to kind of be awake enough, you know, mm-hmm. you kind of passed puberty past the cloud of all of that. And, um, all of a sudden you show up in a town that's new mm-hmm. with a bunch of other strangers that are coming from all kinds of other different towns, mm-hmm. you know, and you're mingling with these people and you don't have, you don't know what to expect because mm-hmm. your whole life up until then, you mostly interact with people that you know what to expect from. Mm-hmm. They live in a very similar environment to you. They probably go to the same school as you, you, your parents probably know each other, you know, you're coming from a, a, from the, well, from the known into the chaos of the unknown and you don't know how to deal with people, Yeah, you know, and you kind of rely on a certain amount of social etiquette to keep things predictable. And then stuff kind of comes back at you and you think, well, I've, okay, I've kind of experienced that before, kind of experienced that before. And your, you, your worldview expands wildly and you're, mm-hmm. then you get to work kind of filling in the gaps. But without, as you said, the, the concentric circles inside of that, that gave you some limited experience with multiple different modes of being mm-hmm. and experience with multiple types of failures that you can successfully navigate the chaos of a new social situation like that mm-hmm. in a healthy way, at least. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's that thing. It's that's why it's harder for people who don't have that, especially the, the, that's those closest to them have that sort of safety in relationship. You know, it's, it's harder to, um, move into a situation and go out into the world, into the unknown and make connections because your experience in the world is, is even those closest to you is chaos Mm -hmm. and self-interest and, uh, you know, no one's really looking out for you. Like, you know, I think of goodwill hunting in that sense, you know, Mm -hmm. as, as a movie goes. And, um, but it's like, and you're looking for some sort of foundation to sort of like kind of, like kind of jump off from, you know, and, and again, Google hunting, you know, he finds that in Robin Williams, you know, mm-hmm. which kind of comes in as a sort of father like figure, you know, that comes in and helps him sort of move into manhood, move into that next space, you know? Yeah. Um, did he, did, so rare. Did Will hunting have parents in that movie? They were never mentioned. Mm-hmm. I, don't I mean, think clearly he had, Every individual had parents, but were they a part of the movie at all? Mm-mm. Oh, okay. No, he lived in a house by himself. And from what it sounded like, I think there was something about like his dad was an alcoholic and beat him and stuff like that. Oh, that's right. There was something in that He area. did say something about Maybe that. Maybe like yeah, sexual he abuse. He had scars mm-hmm. on him. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's that situation. But that's the thing is, is we can see that and play it out. And it's super unfortunate that some people have to grow up in that area, but we can also go back and say, 
would it have been better, you know, if, and then we kind of get back to the ideal that you're, that you were talking about earlier. Well, I don't know that it's productive to the line of thinking or the conversation to, to ask questions about scenarios or even our own lives and, and ask something like, would it have been better? Because, well, because we, the better in question is the ideal mm-hmm. and it doesn't ever fully, it doesn't ever exist. Yeah. It doesn't manifest. It's the itself. thing that we point ourselves toward and mm-hmm. act out. And so it's not, would it have been better if my parents weren't the way that they were? Mm-hmm. I think the right answer to that is, well, it's, it's sort of an impossible question because, yeah. well, we don't know who they would be if they weren't the way that they were. And we don't know who you would be, or if you'd even exist, if, you know, things had been different. So the right question is, how can what has failed to live up to the ideal be redeemed? Hmm. That's an interesting way to frame that. And then I think what happens, and, and this is what makes a story, well, you know that this is the right way to think about it, because this is what makes a story interesting. Mm-hmm. This is why Goodwill Hunting is a good movie, is Robin Williams steps up and plays the figure that has been absent, mm-hmm. the father that he's like the father who has been absent mm-hmm. and, and returns and, and actually picks up that role and plays that part, mm-hmm. which inspires and encourages will i was going to call him goodwill (laughs) oh goodwill yeah oh goodwill to pick up what he can and play his own part Mm. you know and toward the end of the movie he's like he he actually stops pushing everyone away Mm. and he says i'm I'm finally going to go do the thing yeah i'm I'm gonna gonna go see about about the girl girl. (laughs) yeah right so it's when it's when what has failed begins to be redeemed that we ourselves step into the role that is best for us. Hmm. And I was thinking a lot about this in terms of the question, you know, this is age old question. Okay. Evil exists. If there's a God, why would he allow things like this to happen? Hmm. And one answer to that may be, well, everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's a really great thing to tell ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, something bad happens to you that you wish wouldn't have happened. And you say, well, everything happens for a reason. God has his design and I'm going to trust him. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not that that's not a good thing to do, but I just don't, I don't buy that. I think that a lot of times bad things happen because, well, we walk up to the tree and eat, eat the apple. You know, we make a choice. Mm-hmm. We allow things to happen. It isn't God necessarily that allows things to happen. It is, it is us that allows things to happen. And God allows us to allow things to happen. And so it isn't like something bad happens that God allowed that because he has a plan. It's something more like, no, God allowed, no, you, you fucked it up. It's on you. And the promise of God is not that he's going to, play some part of referee and, and allow or disallow good and bad things to, to his design. It's more like we fuck things up, but then if we go to God and say, I fucked this up, will you use it for something good? Mm-hmm. Then that story can progress. Mm-hmm. And it, it is like, I think God responds like, yes, I, I had, my mom said something to me recently and she said, God seems to, allow the worst thing imaginable to happen and then transform that into the best thing imaginable. Mm. And which is the story of the cross. Mm -hmm. What's the worst thing imaginable in a sense? It is God is murdered at the hands of his own creation. 
I mean, is there anything more tragic than that? And then on top of that, it is by way of betrayal, false accusation, horrific suffering mm-hmm. in front of his mother and the ones that he loves. Abandonment. Abandonment. Bodies. You know, it's like, it, 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 it's, it's the saddest story ever told. Mm-hmm. But then what's on the other side of that? It's, I mean, the story is redemption, ultimate redemption. Mm-hmm and resurrection. And so I think the goodwill hunting way of thinking about this is we have fallen short of the ideal that we were pointed at and things have gone to hell. Things have gone to shit. But if we allow that to be redeemed, we allow someone to step in and, and pick up the parts that have been played poorly And we respond to that in a way that says, I'm going to participate in this redemption by making the decision to play my part in that. Then everything gets, I don't even want to say turned around. It gets transformed. Mm -hmm. I mean, will gets transformed and and then his relationships get transformed. And that's what makes that movie good is because it's in a sense, it's an archetypal story. Yeah. In the way that you're saying this, it, it makes me think of your orientation, like how you're oriented is how you see the world. And in the goodwill hunting aspect is, you know, you know, Robin Williams reorients will in a sense and changes the focus of his attention, you know? And I think that's something that, you know, even you take the Christ story, you know, it's like the most hor- horrific thing happened and we could be like, oh man, look at that. And it's like, but then it reorients us to this sort of like redemption and forgiveness that changes our perspective as far as like how, how we see the world, like, you know, so that we can look into the face of adversity and strife and all these kind of things yeah, and right. see how is this going to be transformed? Like, that's our question. Like, what am I going to see in this? Like there's, there's some, there's some sort of hope, even, even in in the most horrific situation. And you see this in Victor Frankl too. There's sort of, you know, in all of this, he still had hope and he saw glimpses of that, you know, in the interaction with guards who were his captors, you know? And, and I think that's something that we have to, we have to be able to, orient ourselves in that space, you know, but also not being in denial of, um, the horrific things that are happening to us or from our actions, which, yeah, which is, as you were talking about that too, it made me think of like, like intrinsic and extrinsic evil. It's like intrinsic is the things I do that cause bad things to happen, you know, that are my responsibility. Mm-hmm. And then things that are happening outside of myself, I have no control over that happen to me, you know, mm that you might not have anything, you might not have any part in the thing itself. Like I'm walking down the street and someone runs me over, you know, it's like, I have Mm -hmm. no, or, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, a Jewish guy in in a house and these Nazis come and take me. It's not because of anything I did, Mm. you know, other than maybe being Jewish. I don't know. (laughs) I want to come back to that. I want to ask you that question. Do you, are there things that happen that are out, that we have nothing to do with. They're out of our control. Yes. Um, but I want to come back oh, to that sorry. because <laughs> done. <laughs> done. Okay. Fix it. Um, well, no, what, what we were saying <laughs> earlier, um, uh, well, what you were saying about orientation reminded me of that character in the great divorce mm-hmm. when he's 
in the sort of purgatory area and there's this man that he walks up and he's talking to him and this man has this lizard that's growing out of his shoulder and this lizard is whispering lies into his ear and making him uh, scared and nervous and self-conscious and this angel comes up and says to the man, may I cut that off? Mm. And he objects because this thing is like literally a part of him. Yeah. You know, it's, it's growing out of him and it's making the angels like it's making you miserable. And he's like, yes, but it's, it's a part of me. I can't let go of it. I can't, you can't cut part of me off. I'll die too. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember how it happens, but the, the angel finally cuts it off and the lizard falls to the ground and then transforms into a white unicorn with wings. And I think that's such a, that's that image strikes me so hard and so deeply that I don't, I'm not sure I'll ever get to the bottom of it. But to me, it's something like you, you have a white unicorn with wings and you don't even know it. Mm -hmm. And you are actually actively preventing yourself from having it. And where does it exist? It exists in the places that are making you miserable. Mm -hmm. And if you will just let them go, if you will orient yourself to some transformation and maybe you don't because it's scary because, well, what is this thing going to become? And, and maybe I'll die in the process. Maybe things will get worse than they are now. At least now things are predictable, hmm. even though they might be bad, they're predictably bad. And I'm not having to face the unknown of what might happen. Mm-hmm. And all of that is preventing you from having a goddamn white unicorn with wings. <laughs> like, and I think we have these things all over the place in our life and we don't, we don't allow that transformation. Yeah. And I think that's why we have to have an orientation of what's well, partly why I think that faith is built into life. It isn't, uh, um, it's not a religious idea mm-hmm. necessarily. It's like you're confronting the unknown of the future at all times. That takes faith. Mm-hmm. What happens if you get rid of the things that are making miser- you miserable? You don't know. And in order to do it, you off- it, ha- it takes faith. Okay, I'm going to let it happen, even though I don't know what's going to happen. Mm. And generally, that's when the things that suck transform themselves. Well, it's like the, the worst thing becomes the best thing. Mm-hmm. The worst thing in my life, which was this, this horrible... It reminds... Like, I think about this lizard as... Uh, remember uh, Comet, the insult dog? No, it was a character on Conan O'Brien late night, <laughs> uh-huh. like from the nineties. Yeah. I think of the lizard that way, just like hurling insults at, in your ear 24 mm-hmm. seven, you know? Um, and that shit transforms into the coolest mythical beast that you get to hop on and ride off into the sunset. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. that's so wonderful. Um, okay. So are there things that are completely out of our control that happen to us? Yes. And you say yes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true. I would say probably like, I don't know. I, I'm going to put a percentage on it. Like probably 90% of things are within our control in some form or fashion. Um, but there are, there is an aspect that there are things that are out of our control. Uh, and I, and I take that and more of the things that happen to you and not necessarily how you perceive or orient yourself to them. <clears throat> so, you know, I think like, you know, a lot of things happened to Viktor Frankl that were out of his control, but in the way that he oriented himself, 
it was as if he was still in control, you know, like, like the whole, uh, you can say it better than I can, but, the the, the, the moment between what was it? Response and action. Stimulus and response. Stimulus and response. In between stimulus responses is, is a space. And in that space is our freedom, mm-hmm. freedom to choose how to respond. Yeah. So I think there's that part that we have control over is what, how we respond, but there's things that we cause. And then there's things that are, that are, that we are actually legitimate victims of in some regards, you know, mm. like, you know, uh, someone breaks into your house, a home invasion or something like that. And you are, you know, hurt or, you know, your arm gets cut off <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. No. And I get that. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that seems like obviously out of your control, but then mm-hmm. I wonder, well, why didn't you double lock? <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. did, did you fail to secure your house? Mm-hmm. Um, did you fail to develop relationships with your neighbors that, you know, when you have relationships with the people around that around you, you look out for them, mm-hmm. which is to say you notice things and would somebody have noticed? Um, did you fail to, uh, you know, did you know that you needed to move because crime was going up and you have a family to protect and yet you didn't do it because you told yourself that you couldn't afford it mm. and you couldn't get a different job because you weren't good enough? Um, did you get invited to the, uh, the what would it be called? Like the community a watch or whatever event yeah. where we, we noticed that crime went up and we're going to have a, the, the, the precinct, uh, Law, not law guy, <laughs> uh, politician <laughs> or whatever. Guy. What would you call that? Uh, yeah. City council yeah. held, held a meeting like mm-hmm. to address it, but you didn't go. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I just wonder about things like that. That I, I, you know, you could say, <clears throat> well, Victor Frankel didn't have control any control over getting thrown into Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know about that. I think, yeah. I, I think we maybe it's functionally necessary to categorize a certain number of things as out of our control. Um, but we are so often complicit in everything that happens around us mm-hmm. because we feel like I, I don't have the energy or the time to give my attention to that. You know, and, and you know that the more you give your attention to something, the better it gets. Mm-hmm. And the more things you give your attention to, the more things get better, you know. But at the same time, I mean, I, I, I think I agree with you fundamentally, but practically it's, it's, I think that's a hard thing to act out because there's an infinite amount of, cause I mean, we're just talking about one thing, which was crime and home invasion. Right. So like how many hours of your life are you going to spend to that one thing, you know, and then, and then you could talk about your kids homework or something like that. You know, it's like how many hours of your life? Well, you just didn't sit down and do homework with your kid. You know, it's like, it's, it's so there, I feel like that just expands into like an almost insurmountable, like there's a certain amount that you have to like accept that you don't have control over these things. And I think that's the hard thing is it's like at this moment and at this time, what do I need to spend my energy on that I, that I do have control over and to, so there's certain so, things you have yeah. to Yeah. I mean, we always fall short, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't mean that we 
didn't have control. I mean, this is a hard subject. So mm-hmm. Solzhenitsyn said of what happened in um, the Soviet Union, one of the things that he said as a result of that when he was trying to think through how he came to be a part of it mm-hmm. was that every man is responsible for the actions of every, one, every other man. Mm-hmm. And I think, in a sense, that seems absurd. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not responsible for that kid who shot up that high school or, mm-hmm. you know, um, what's going on on the Southern border or what's happening in Russia and Ukraine right now. What do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think about, so, you know, that, that game six degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so statistically, and apparently somebody did a study on this, you, every single person is only something like four degrees separated from every other person on the planet. Hmm. Like pick a random person in China. Mm-hmm. You statistically, you are only four relationships away from that person. Hmm. That's kind of mind bending. Yeah. But then I think, okay, that means that most of what I have control over happens outside of its visibility to me. Hmm. So we've talked, I think I've told this story on the podcast before. I wrote about it on my Substack, but my experience with playing music is like this. You know, most of my time playing music, the my senses are telling me I'm not really having an effect on anybody. Mm-hmm. I have something to say and I'm saying it and no one's really listening. Mm-hmm. You know, except for like the occasional really great show and I feel good about myself. Most of the time I feel like I'm I'm kind of no good and, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then I have this experience, had this experience once where I put out a record and I didn't really, by the numbers, I didn't really think it was going very well. And several months later, I'm walking down the street and I hear my name called and I turn around and this guy comes up to me. I hadn't met him before. And he told me this story about how one of the songs on that record had really affected him and his wife after a recent miscarriage, I think is what he said. Hmm that the lyrics had been of comfort to them. Hmm. And I just walked away just astounded and feeling so foolish for ever thinking that I could judge the effect that my work was having on the world. Hmm. I felt foolish for doing it, doing that. And in a sense, what we're talking about as far as things happening to you and your, your control, you know, if you make your relationships as good as they can be, you have no idea the effect that you have, let's just say on your, your children, your friends, the mm-hmm. people that are closest to you, the effect that your relationship has had on those people and the things that they are going to do as a result of that to everyone else in, your, in their life that mm-hmm. you don't know, yeah. your reach goes well beyond what you are able to discern or measure or see the impacts of. Mm. And so I might think that the Russia Ukraine thing has nothing to do with me, but if I'm only four degrees separated from all of those people, Mm. the ripples of my life are affecting them in ways that I will never know. And I can't describe to you, Mm -hmm. you know, I can't, but it seems to me that, well, if I made, if I made everything in my life as good as I could possibly make it, the effect of that, would also be 
immeasurably good hmm. because well, I wouldn't be able to measure it, mm-hmm. but it would have, it would ripple throughout humanity mm-hmm. and all of our lives are that way. So something happens to me and I might say I have no control over it, but you know, in some weird butterfly effect kind of, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> Ashton Kutcher way, like you might say it's karma. Yeah. It's another way to describe it. But mm-hmm. I think these things, hmm. I don't know. End of rant. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's a little bit of semantics in this that, that because I mean, there's a, there's a part I fundamentally agree with you on is that sort of taking ultimate responsibility. Yeah. And I think there's something very, I think as a fundamental value, I think that's, we should all carry that. Um, however, I do see, I do see the effect when people do have a unrealistic or oh shit, how do you say it? Like an unrealistic understanding of their responsibility and what their maybe it's like the the amount of responsibility that they have for something. And so then it becomes more of a, a condemnation on themselves where it's like, you have to do the sort of, you know, going back to goodwill hunting. It's not your fault. Mm-hmm. It's like, ah, oh, no, I know. No. It's not your fault. Mm, God, that like, scene was, <laughs> it gets me every time. It doesn't yeah. matter. My kids loved it. We went back and watched it. Yeah. Know? But it's, it's something that's like, there's something in him that he had to accept. It wasn't his fault. Right. And, but also something we admire about Will is that, <laughs> we act like he's a real person uh, <laughs> is that he, it, he does have sort of like this, you know, you know, I am my own man kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. but he doesn't really realize what that means. And right. Rob Williams shows him what that is. Yeah. And there's a part that's accepting, Hey, you know what? That's not your fault. Like that happened to you. Mm-hmm. It's not your fault. Well, and I guess that's how I say I, <laughs> Hmm. Well, I think that's why I say it's, it's semantic because I think fundamentally there's a part of how you're saying that I, I, I completely agree with is like taking, like if you can, if you, t- I mean, it's, it's also a very Christ-like taking the responsibility of the world on your shoulders. It's almost like there's a paradox in here because, hmm. gotcha. so if I'm trying to flesh out the idea that you have some kind of control over everything that happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's getting very close to describing a God. Yeah. And we all know that we are not gods as much as we might like to be, <laughs> yeah. you know, we are not. Uh, and so, no, you don't have control of everything. And yet you kind of do at the same time. There's a paradox there. Um, and, and maybe we are not gods simply because we refuse to be gods in, in mm-hmm. some sense. I mean, none of us has ever become a God because we quite literally just say no. Mm-hmm. It, that might be the case. And I think the functional category of it's not your fault mm-hmm. is really important mm-hmm. because we often do take on, as you were saying, responsibilities for things that are not ours. Mm-hmm. You know, your father beats you and you feel like it's your fault. Mm-hmm. Or you didn't protect your mother while she was beating her or something, her, something like, that. like that. Yeah. No, 
It's mm-hmm. not your fault. Um, and it's hard. It's hard to talk about mm-hmm. those kinds of things because I don't want to relent on either idea. Like the idea that it isn't the fault of the six-year-old boy for not protecting his mother. It's, it's not his fault. Well, it, he, he's not <clears throat> in a position to protect her. And, mm-hmm. and yet I also don't want to relent on the idea that there, there is in some sense, nothing that is, maybe it's not right to say out of your control, but it's like, which you don't have some effect on. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's it is that in that situation, obviously we're talking about a fictitious situation, but you know, to be able, that is taking responsibility is sort of, I've, I've thought for all my ages that I was responsible for this and I had that I should have been, I should have done something different and to take responsibility in this situation would be, no, you didn't, you know, like I need to take responsibility that I was actually a helpless in this space. Well, and maybe that's why I was saying earlier that, I don't think the right way to think, to talk about things is mm-hmm. it'd be better if I had better parents, mm-hmm. you know, if things had been different, that's not the right way to talk about it. The right way to talk about it is how can we redeem what has failed to live up to the ideal? Mm-hmm. But in that sense, you'd, you'd still have to understand. So it's almost like, again, the both and in that situation, the paradoxical aspect of it is, is to understand the ideal. Yes. Well, and you don't. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. That's what, in a sense, makes it an ideal. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a symbol. It's not something which is understood. It's something which is acted out. Mm-hmm. And, and then when you act it out, you see how you close see or how, how much you fail. How yeah, much you fail. <laughs> right. I learned. Um, I don't know how this exactly fits in, but about the Dunning Kruger effect recently. Have you heard of this? Uh, y- yes. Yeah, kind of. Just you have to refresh me though. Basically, when, when somebody is learning a skill. Mm-hmm they will report at, as they begin to learn the skill, they'll report being very good at it. Or if they're learning about a subject, you learn a little bit and you think, you know, a lot. And then the more you learn, the, the more you realize you don't know. And so your, your self-report of how good you are, how much you understand goes spikes at the beginning, goes way up and then goes way back down. And then it kind of comes up again. But at that point you have enough sort of wisdom and experience not to make an arrogant statement. Like I know a lot, you become more like the Socrates version of Mm. I'm, I'm wise because I know that I'm not wise, Mm. you know, that, that kind of paradox. Mm. Um, has that, what were we talking about? How's that fit? Uh, responsibility. Mm. Like there's maybe this ideal that you or idea that, you know, in the beginning, I mean, again, just kind of reading into maybe how you're kind of bringing this in was just that, it is good for you to take responsibility for as many things as you can and mm-hmm. you will experience success, but then you will also start to experience the failure of taking on that responsibility. And that's also part of the learning process of, as, as, as you take more responsibility, you know, you start to see your shortcomings and that therefore mm. you start to oh, see, yeah. start to see things more in a, in a correct manner. Oh, I said that because we were talking about how, as you act out the ideal, you see how close or how far away Mm. from it you are. And it it seems like in a lot of times you act out the ideal at first, you think, Oh, we got pretty close. We're doing Mm. pretty well. But then the more you do it, the more you realize, well, 
I only thought I was close to the ideal because I was, was not seeing the ideal properly. Yeah, it's like it as small. you move toward it, it fleshes out and, <laughs> and gets bigger and, mm-hmm. and in a sense farther away. Um, yeah. Which is interesting because like even like in the, a lot of the postmodern type thing is they just want to get rid of the ideal altogether. And it becomes arbitrary and subjective. Yeah, right. And therefore you have nothing to really you're attaining to only only what power dictates or substitute power for whatever thing you're going to put into that category, you know? Well, you, you can see, I mean, that's, that's the murder of God. Mm. And I guess you can see why someone might be attempted, might be tempted to say something like the nuclear family is a lie told to promote capitalism. Mm -hmm. Because if the nuclear family is, is an ideal and we're all failing to properly act out that ideal, you might just, and if you're failing particularly badly at it and everyone around, around you is, you might say, well, the, the problem here is the damn ideal. Mm, yeah. So let's get rid of that. We should get rid of Solve that. The problem. And then now there's no such thing as failure uh-huh. because there's no such thing as attempt. You know, mm. we're just going to accept everything the way that it is. We're not going to judge anything anymore that there, thereby nothing fails. Which is hilarious because all of a sudden then you set up a different judge, you know? Well, I think that you become the judge uh-huh. because to the extent that things are bad, then without the ideal to say, well, the responsibility for changing things is on my shoulders. Mm. If we don't have the ideal, then it's no longer on your shoulders. So that the things must be bad because they're being done to you. Mm they're out of your control. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not your failure to take responsibility. It's someone else's <clears throat> rent seeking malevolent greed. Mm-hmm. And then you have to go look around. I mean, that's the thing is like, as soon as you kill God, you look around for the next closest thing mm-hmm. to kill. Yeah. Because you're, you no longer have a reason to see anything positively. Mm. And that seems to be what happens is that, um, you know, in the ideologies, let's say that have gone up against the Judeo Christian based ideals of the enlightenment in the West, um, particularly communism and its cousins, Mm -hmm. And then thinking particularly about what happened in Germany, Russia, and China in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. It's like, we have a proposition for how to fix everything. We just need to kill or get rid of these particular people, and then everything's going to be better. Mm. And you get rid of those people, and everything isn't better. So it's like, well, maybe we didn't have enough of those mm. people. Maybe our category was too constrained. Let's expand the category. And actually, you know what? You, who I thought was on my team, you actually fucked that up. And so we got to get rid of you, too. Mm. And it's like, it's this atrophy of everything just becomes smaller and smaller and smaller Hmm. until like in the Soviet union, everything collapses Hmm. or, well, then I think that happened in Mao's China too, but Mm -hmm. that's no good. What's ironic in that it it collapses on the individual because you know, whether it, 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 if you boil down to a Cain and Abel's type situation, Mm. All of a sudden, it, and then it, it collapses down to the individual, which was Cain. And I think that's that's kind of almost where where you're kind of getting at is, you know, what do you do when you're the only one left? That's so interesting. That really is the Cain and Abel story, isn't it? I don't know like, where this goes, but like that just, when you said that, and like we've talked a lot about the Cain and Abel stuff, and it's just mm-hmm. sort of like, it really does collapse down to Cain. 
Yeah, well, and Cain's descendants go on to invent weapons of war, mm. which is interesting because that puts a whole different twist on. It's like not only did Cain kill his ideal and then become murderous mm. because of it, his descendants continued to be murderous because of it. Yeah, and they and and creatively murderous, like to go invent weapons to go enact their rage and their hatred, mm. which goes back to this idea of like, you know, it's not your fault, young man. Mm-hmm. Well. This gets into the very complicated idea of sins of your father. Mm. And in a sense, we are all acting out the spirit of our ancestors in ways that we don't understand. Mm. We are acting out, you know, Cain's descendants acted out his, the spirit of him, the spirit of his resentment and revenge against the Mm. ideal and I think that there are things like that in our own lives that we're acting out that we don't even know because we're acting it out on behalf of people we never met. Hmm. And some of that stuff well, we could maybe, I hope, lay down, you know, lay it down and say, I'm, I'm not carrying this forward anymore. Hmm. That's funny because it's like, it's kind of what God told Cain was, hey, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. Door. He's basically like, "Hey, Cain, take responsibility for your for your your offering. You know, don't be jealous of your brother. Take responsibility of your offering." Yeah. And well, doesn't and he it say just turns to jealousy? Sin and, crouched at your door, and you invited it in, uh, yes, and uh-huh. were creative with it, mm-hmm. which is almost like you had sex with it. Mm-hmm. You procreated with it. Mm-hmm. You made something new out of it. Mm-hmm. That's that's scary. Because I know exactly what it means. <laughs> totally. Because I have done it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And holy shit, the offspring uh-huh. are a handful. Yeah. You know? And mm. I love that. I feel like there's so many things that kind of like explode out of that. It's like like if you don't take responsibility, then that is sort of like that's sort of what propagates is that sort of um you start bringing death and destruction on the world around you. If you don't take responsibility for yourself. Maybe it's like you are constantly creating Mm -hmm. whether you like, whether you like it or not. And and that can either be creating good Mm -hmm. life. It can be an act of redemption or it can be an act of destruction. Mm. And you don't really have a choice to be neutral. It's, you don't get to not be. Mm-hmm. So pay attention. Be careful. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who it was. Uh <clears throat> My, uh, this guy I used to hang around with a lot. Like he and I had some great conversations and one of his comments was just like, I didn't ask to be here. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what kind of response is that? And he and I yeah. got into, I mean, we had so many great we, we, anyways, but he was, that was his thing. It's like, I didn't ask to be here. Yeah. And so it was a sort of defiance, defiance of being in a sense. <clears throat> Well, that's such a funny thing to say. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask to be like to be alive. Yeah. 
No, because you, you weren't alive. You weren't mm -hmm. alive to ask. Yeah. You know, in a sense, you being here is a gift. Mm -hmm. And you can either treat it like one. God. Or the, be resentful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Cain and Abel story is so fundamental. Uh -huh. I think uh, Peterson pointed this out, these biblical stories. Like, it isn't, they aren't true in the sense of like, did these things happen? Mm -hmm. Like a historical record. It's true in that they are happening hmm. all the time. Yeah, over and over again. <laughs> over and over again. Yeah. They're happening inside each of us right now. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is sort of, in a sense, like I understand why people take their revenge against life. Because it's hard. Mm -hmm. You know, in a sense, no, you didn't ask to be here. And you wake up in the morning and it's like, God damn it. Again. Mm -hmm. Got to do this shit again this conscious being shit, you know, this not understanding shit, this mm -hmm. not having control shit, this, <laughs> this, my mind is constantly thinking, coming up with ideas shit. Yeah. Um, and nothing works the way that I want shit. Mm -hmm. So you take your revenge on it and say, God, I didn't ask to be here, mm. you know? Yeah. And then or we take, you, oh. you could recognize the fact that you maybe could be a God if you, actually just allowed that hmm. if you allowed for the things that are making you miserable to be cut away and turn into the goddamn white unicorn with wings. <laughs> I think that's the name of the of this episode. Yeah. The white goddamn <laughs> unicorn with wings. <laughs> uh, but you have to like do like asterisk, asterisk, G, asterisk, asterisk, G A M N E or G M. <laughs> yeah, totally. Or we're going to make an acronym out of it. Hmm. Oh, okay. G D W U W W. <laughs> Goddamn white unicorn. <laughs> like it. <laughs> so we'll have merch soon with that on it. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> totally, yeah that'd be great. <laughs> unicorn. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, sure. Leave it there. Yeah, I think that was good. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, guys, thanks for uh, joining us. It's uh it's great that I also just felt really good uh, with us putting these out the next day too. This has been, I don't know why, I guess it feels more manageable. Hmm. Yeah. Agreed. I love it. So hope Let's you guys listen to, to this tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll Bye. See you guys. Bye. Cheers. Cheers.